Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Assistant Professor Zachary Herz, legal historian in the Department of Classics at the University of Colorado, Boulder. This is episode CLXXV, The Murder of Pedanius Secundus. When Pedanius Secundus was murdered by his slave, the law was precise. Every slave in the household, every man, woman and child, would be crucified as punishment. The law that allowed this was called the Senatus Consultum Silanianum. It existed to ease the minds of the wealthy slave owners of Rome, so they could live in power amongst the slaves who knew that their actions would mean that all are punished. Here's Zachary Herz. So the bad law, the Senatus Consultum Silanianum, is a sort of decree of the Senate, which is one of many different ways that Romans pass laws. It dates to Augustus, we believe. And what it's best known for is providing for the questioning, which we should understand to mean torture, the torture and execution of all slaves living under the roof of a murdered slave owner. So if you have, say, 100 slaves in your household helping with household man- helping with coerced into household management and other tasks and you are killed all of these slaves in your household will be killed there are some restrictions to this for example i believe the slave owner has to be killed at home there has it has to be tied to some idea of the slaves being potentially implicated in their death it's a very very broad very punitive way of trying to get at the idea of a conspiracy of the enslaved to kill a slave holder that's what the bad law is aiming at and mm. you know it justifies mass torture and execution so we're not fans and it's quite expansive and all covering and i gather it was happening enough i.e a slave would kill a slave owner that they've gone well we need an extra check and balance in place i mean that's an assumption on my part it is it's an interesting assumption and it gets at something i find kind of fascinating as a legal historian because it looks like it doesn't it Mm. right And I think a very, very common thing that legal historians do is we say, look, this is one of our best records of social practice. If you outlaw something, I sometimes joke that there are kind of three levels, right? You know that meme where there's like the brain, the bigger brain, the biggest brain, the galaxy brain? A level of interpretation where, and I think this is now no longer really done. Historians used to say, well, this was illegal, so we know it didn't happen, which is deranged right people used to say well if this was illegal under roman statutes we can assume it wasn't going on in this given case and that was an aid to interpreting contracts or other kinds of social historical data right and then eventually people realized no people break the law all the time that's insane so we got to i think what you're talking about which is most of the time what we imagine as legal historians, that if a practice was outlawed or very, very harshly punished, Mm. that means it happened often enough that people were scared about it, right? When I'm teaching this, I often say, no one ever had to pass a law making me eat cake. 
right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Laws sort of are placed upon a landscape of human desire and action and presume that people are going to want to act in ways the law is constraining because otherwise you don't really need to make a law about it, right? If it's what people are naturally doing, you're not going to legally push. Mm. I have become in recent years a little bit more skeptical of this because, and I'm going to get a little bit political in your podcast, Matt, there is a very long history, certainly in America, I don't know if this is the case elsewhere in the Commonwealth, of legislatures passing laws, banning things that never happened as a way to sort of try to whip up moral panics, right? Ah, I see. So the yeah. example I always find most salient and that I occasionally used in my writing is there are multiple states in America that have made it a crime for trans people to sneak around in the bathroom where they shouldn't be, right? That's mm -hmm. not a thing. Nobody is sort of weaponizing trans identity in order to sneak around women's bathrooms, right? But by banning it, you can try to create a moral panic around this hot button issue. And I have started really increasingly looking at ancient law a little bit more through that scope, especially anything that dates to the reign of Augustus, right? It was probably most famous for, in the legal sphere, for passing very wide-ranging laws attempting to address an epidemic of sexual immorality for which our only real evidence is those laws and Augustus talking about those mm -hmm. laws. Yeah. I think these kind I think when you're seeing legislation that forbids extremely immoral or extremely sort of salacious slash frightening behavior, that's a slightly dicier assumption. Sometimes we have to make it because we don't have other sources, right? Welcome to the ancient world. We have no idea what's going on and we're making stuff up. But with these kinds of laws, I really don't know. I feel very comfortable saying that Romans of Augustus's time were terrified that the enslaved laborers they kept in their house might be unhappy with them and might go after them as a result. That was a real fear. I think we can say that with some comfort based not only in this law, but on sort of other stories that survived that I think we're going to talk about in a bit. But I don't know if this was really happening. These kinds of very strong social anxieties can almost override reality, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you look at this law and what it applies to, you've got it pointing at slaves enacting such a harsh punishment that they will think five times before they act against their master. You've got it written and enforced by a Senate who is very wealthy, who own a lot of slaves and are directly invested in this being applied. And the other aspect of this is that you've got the plebs, the normal Romans on the street, who think that this sort of law, once it's enacted, which we will talk about, is just such a huge waste of life that they've got to protest about it. This law has got nothing to do with those people but it's got everything to do with, I guess, what they just see as, if not a waste of human life, a waste of perfectly fine functioning slaves. I can see why this law is written by people who are very scared of the possibility of the majority acting against them. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that is, I think, sometimes hard for us to remember about Rome because our sources don't necessarily emphasize it as much as we would like them to, is just how dominated Rome was in terms of population, in terms of people on the street, 
by enslaved labor in the imperial period. I'm never happy with my percentages, but I believe we think at this point all of Italy, the majority of inhabitants of Roman Italy in the imperial period are enslaved. I think we're very, very confident of that for the city of Rome. And of course, remember, even beyond the population that is directly enslaved, you have a large population of formerly enslaved people, people who have been quote unquote freed, liberty, but nevertheless remain sort of sharply legally subordinated to their former enslavers. And there's a very, very large unfree population in the city. And none of those people are in the Senate. None of them are writing the laws. And the people who are, they are terrified of how many people who hate them are managing their homes. This is a community that can only really be controlled through, on one hand, these sort of promises of freedom and manumission that are not entirely plausible and are sort of oversold, we think, given the sources. Mm. But on the other hand, the threat of extreme violence. I mean, Matt, you said these laws are designed to make sure that an enslaved laborer will think five times before they hurt their master. Mm. That's true, but they go so much further than that. They are designed to make it every single slave's business to work against each other. Because remember, the law kills you if you're in the house. If there is a staff of 150 or 200 enslaved servants and one of them kills him, you're dead. Whether or not you did it, it is not just imposing barriers to your action. It is essentially conscripting you into a kind of security service on top of everything else you are doing. It is designed to create an atmosphere of paranoia among the enslaved community in a given house. Mm. This law was passed in 10 CA, Reign right. of Augustus. Yep. Later on, much later on, Reign of Nero, we've got uh, 58 CA, this law is renewed to include freedmen, so not just slaves. Again, I'm going to say what I said at the start here. I would assume that this is put in place because a freedman acted against a master or didn't act in his defense and said, oh, well, loophole, I'm not a slave, I'm freedman. And they needed that as extra coverage, but maybe it's just insurance as well. It's really hard to say. Um, yeah. And again, this goes to my sort of general methodological orientation towards laws being passed for bad and fictional reasons. Some things jump out at me as potentialities here. One is that if we look at the practicalities of many of these upper class urban households, there's a lot of legal effort being spent to differentiate between slaves and freed sort of dependents within the familia, within the sort of broader family or economic unit. It wouldn't necessarily be like that in practice. You mm. might, for example, have an enslaved artisan who's running a stall, who's sort of working on behalf of the household and whose money is going to the household. That person might be freed, but they're still working in the same office. They're still using the same resources. Realistically, Rome is an expensive city. Rome is a brutal city. This person is not going to be able to function outside of the economic power of their former owner. Mm. So you still have these freed people 
who are going to be functionally often indistinguishable from enslaved members of the household. There are going to be marriage bonds between freed and still enslaved members of the household. You often see, for example, women are freed upon having a certain number of children for the household. So you might have a freed mother with enslaved children. These are very, very blurry kinds of status. And as a result, I think this is probably just to sound ghoulish, simplifying enforcement in the environment where a whole lot of people are going to be telling you they were freed. Given the difficulty of records, it's a lot easier to see who is in a generically subordinated status with respect to a family than necessarily being able to tell at a glance um, in a situation of violence and confusion who's what. These statuses are not as clear as Romans sometimes like to pretend they were. Mm. I also wonder, and this is very speculative, our literary account of the reign of Nero, so 58 CE takes us into the Neronian period, place a lot of emphasis on these sort of corrupt, overpowerful freedmen. Our sources for this aren't generally Neronian. I'm thinking of sort of the great Trajanic historians. It seems like they are working out of sources that have a real paranoia about freedmen in this period specifically, the late Julio-Claudian is really marked by this in the historiography. And so I always wonder if there isn't some kind of broader cultural anxiety mm. that is working on the law rather than any actual event. And given the particular way in which the bad law changes in 58, I think that is at least plausible here. I don't know for sure. I'm spitballing. If you were to throw me in a time machine, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on what I would see. Yes, but yeah never bet against a moral panic. Mm. The best case that we've got, uh, which talks about this law, uh, is the murder of Lucius Pedanius Secundus. As recorded in the great Trajanic historian, we are well into that period with Tacitus. Well, Tacitus is the only source that talks about this example, and I guess it's because it's so extreme. But then again, you know, why did no other historian talk about it? Anyway, so Tacitus talks about this example. We've got a, a former consul who was urban prefect during the time of Nero, during the time when he was murdered in 56 CE by one of his slaves. So Tacitus records this in his annals. This is book 14. We've got 42 to 45. And most of those chapters are one of the senators giving his arguments for why all these slaves need to be punished by death. Secundus was murdered by one of his slaves. We're given a couple of possible reasons. Both very different reasons, actually. Different in, I think, a very telling way, right? The two arguments that were given are either the murderer was angry that he had been refused emancipation after a price had been agreed on for this laborer to buy out his contract, essentially, to buy out his freedom. That's door number one. Door number two is a love triangle, mm -hmm. I believe, involving the murderer refusing to tolerate his master's rivalry for the affections of a young boy. Am I missing anything? I hadn't heard that term very often that it used in the text. Academite. Don't Google that. Listeners, do not <laughs> Google this. Turn off images. This is one of those things where... Oh, God. The term catamite, which people sometimes use in translations of Tacitus if they're feeling fussy, is just the receptive partner in homosexual anal sex. That's mm. the very, very literal meaning of the term. We're just talking about a gay love triangle. I mean, watch a soap opera. 
it is striking how one of these stories represents the murderer as someone who wants their freedom, something that certainly Tacitus would be extremely sympathetic to, given how he describes the servility of upper-class Romans in the context of the Principate, and is sort of willing to contract for it, is trying to engage in the forms by which respectable slaves are freed, and is frustrated by essentially the venality of their owner. And then the other one paints the murderer as this sort of monster of uncontrolled lust. Mm. I can see how these two competing traditions could arise as a way for different communities to make sense of this event, because one portrays it as a tragedy brought about by really the owner's greed, and the other paints it much more in terms of enslaved pathology and much more about these sort of degenerates in our home. And I want to be clear, the degeneracy here isn't the murderer being attracted to a male sex partner. The degeneracy is trying to compete with a slave owner over a sexual partner. It's a lack of control. It is uncontrolled lust. You don't necessarily have to read this as homophobic to read it as deeply sort of pathologizing to the enslaved lover. Mm. It's interesting that we get those two possible motives from Tacitus, that he doesn't seem to lean one way or the other. He just says that here are these two very possible motives for the murder. Regardless, it is apparently cut and dry. It's, it seems to be without doubt. The punishment will be that, I guess, the slave and every other slave in the house will be executed. And it's very much a clear application of the law. And then you get a lot of different opinions coming into it. We aren't told a lot of the defense on the case of the slaves, other than it's a bit of a waste of a life. But we do get a long legal argument, as I said, from Gaius Cassius Longinus, possibly a relation of one of Caesar's murderers, I think had that same name. Mm. Pretty sure it's not the same guy, but you know, common names back then. That kind of tells me that Tacitus was interested in that legal argument because that's the only one we get. What are your thoughts on what uh, Longinus says and the argument that he puts forward? Because that is the bulk of what Tacitus tells us, those four chapters about this story are mostly the legal argument. I think it is worthwhile to sort of kind of run through it before I give my take. Shocker, there's metaphor here about sovereignty, but you know, Mm -hmm. when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So Longinus's argument, there's sort of generic antiquarianism, which shouldn't be shocking in a Tacitian sort of argument, right? It's old, let's not be newfangled, right? There's a line that I love. Whom shall the number of his slaves protect when 400 could not shield Pedanius Secundus? The argument there is this very direct claim to how destabilizing this kind of thing is, right? We mentioned this earlier. All the people in the Senate own slaves. And they're owning enslaved laborers as a kind of status possession in addition to everything else, right? You're going to have skilled laborers, you're going to have dancers, you're going to have sexual service providers. And all of these things are just sort of marks of elite wealth, right? It's debauchery, it's pleasure, it's showing off your own culture by the kind of expensive skills that you can unite in your house using the mechanics of slavery. Mm. Pedinius Secundus throws that off because he had too many and he got killed. 
Romans of this class want to believe their slaves are a harmless purchase. They want to believe their slaves bring them glory, safety, power, money. The danger that the slave brings into the house is terrifying. And Longinus is very directly arguing, we need to make sure our slaves protect us. We have a theory in place that slaves are a way to bring security and stability into our homes by outsourcing our labor. Hmm. That needs to be true. We need to make it true. And the bad law is one of the ways that we can make it true. But there's another argument that I sort of want to play with, is, which is that the only way to control slaves is through terror, right? The only way to control an enslaved population is by the threat of wildly disproportionate force. Now, very quickly, we should acknowledge this is obviously not true. If you are worried that there are people in your house who hate you and want you dead, there are other ways to either stop those people from wanting you dead or get them out of your house, right? Hmm. Those are all off the table. Those aren't fun. And those involve you losing money, right? Losing labor. Those involve you losing status. Those involve you maybe having to pay people a wage. Hmm. There's a really interesting line from Pliny that I think we'll be talking about in a bit that gets to this. We're sort of legally constructing a world where slaves can only be dealt with through excessive discipline and then sort of invoking that as a reality and trying to figure out how to proceed. But those are the two big arguments. And what I think you always have to remember when you see Tacitus talking about slavery is that Tacitus pretty frequently invokes slavery as a metaphor for the principate. He invokes the idea of servility and the servile senate and the unbounded kind of submission that the emperor can demand out of other political institutions. You see this, I think, especially of Tacitus and Tiberius, but it's it's not really a subtle theme in his work. Mm. I always think when you read Tacitus talking about the ethics of slaveholding, there's a little joke in the back, right? Because Tacitus's audience is being primed to think of the dynamics of slave ownership and the dynamics of slavery when they think about other kinds of political tyranny that Tacitus often describes hearkening back to some of his less favorite Julio-Claudians. You know, there's an old saying that slaves are good to think with, right? That a lot of people deal with the horror of enslavement by sort of reaching to it as an analogy, trying to bring it into their own lives as a way to bring it under control, essentially. And I think you've got to see that here. When we're hearing about the slave population as only being really rulable through terror, there is a very dark undertone about what it means to be a member of Rome's political but sub-imperial aristocracy at this particular moment. I mean, it is Nero, right? Mm. It's interesting how the, the legal argument put forward uses a lot of, I think, sarcasm and just kind of a, you know, how can anybody else hold a different opinion to what I'm saying. One line of text that really uh, puts that to me is, uh, did the killer avenge his personal wrongs because the contract touched his patrimony or because he was losing a slave from his family establishment? Let us go the full way and pronounce the owner justly slain. And you can imagine him kind of really, you know, trying to get the laughs out of the senators by saying lines like that. And of course, I think we should all acknowledge, yeah, 
I'd pronounce that. I mean, would you? <laughs> Justly slain. Ah, oh, I, I don't know. Well, here we go. Maybe I'm showing the senator side of me. I, I don't know that he was justly slain. We can't say because we don't know enough about the circumstances and we're given two possible motives, neither of which seem unresolvable. I think the punishment is excessive. I mean, this gets to, I think, a broader question, and maybe I'm being, you know, a little bit of a bomb thrower today, but I mean, I am not sympathetic to this guy at all. And this argument that I agree with you is bitterly ironic in its framing, to me, articulates some pretty compelling points, right? Is it so ridiculous to say that the killer was avenging a personal wrong for being enslaved against his will and against promises that were made to him. To me, that doesn't seem obviously absurd. Mm. Certainly sort of when Romans talk about what an indignity it is to be enslaved, I don't think it's a ridiculous claim at all. The idea and the idea that, well, this guy didn't own the sexual partner. It's the other one who did, and he should be respecting this legal status that says he has nothing to say. It's clear Tacitus does not expect his audience to buy these claims. But it's worth pointing out, sometimes we phrase things sarcastically when we can't really explain why they're wrong without saying some things we don't like to say. Mm. It's a very common argumentative tactic. And I think in this case, what Tacitus is really saying is, and I don't know if he even realizes this, if we don't do this, if we let ourselves feel even a shred of sympathy, that would mean this guy was human. And none of us are willing to go that far. That has implications we don't like. Mm. Because that makes us start to think about what we are doing and how our households look. So we have to just take this as the bridge that cannot be crossed. Can you believe this guy saying these are good arguments? Because if they're good arguments, our lives fall apart. Yeah. From my perspective, look, I, there are very, very few Romans of this class whose deaths I would be particularly inclined to feel bad about. They played very stupid games. I don't care if they win stupid prizes. Mm -hmm. His final line shows a lot about the, the situation that Roman senators have put themselves in. I can't imagine that anybody went away from this Senate meeting and didn't go straight home and kind of have a good hard look and a think about every slave that they went past in their household <laughs> after these sort of events. So he says, so as long as our slaves disclose them, we may live solitary amid their numbers, secure amid their anxieties, and finally, if die we must, certain of our vengeance amid the guilty crowd. So, you know, kind of like sleeping safely in the knowledge that if one of them kills you, at least they're all going to die. It doesn't sound like it's worth it being mean to slaves, let alone owning them. This raises to me a really interesting question about what it means to sort of treat one's slaves poorly or well, right? Mm -hmm. You can see in a lot of our sources about this, a lot of Roman anxiety about what it means to treat their slaves well in a way that, again, is not particularly unfamiliar if you look at materials that are produced in other slave societies. It's something people are obsessed with because no one wants to believe they're a bad person, right? Mm. And so you build out these elaborate codes of how you're supposed to treat the people who you, you know, dominate in order to allow you to think that you're being okay. I guess, I mean, this is a terrible way to put it, but it comes down to a carrot and a stick. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. What's funny is that that's very explicit in certain parts of Roman slaveholding discourse and very much not in others. So I think most of us, I'm assuming everyone in your audience sort of is familiar with Romans had slaves. That's like a thing we've all heard of. Mm. And what we're describing here is a very particular subset of that experience, right? The sort of we're describing enslaved laborers who are kept in urban households. That's not to say that they're necessarily doing well for themselves, but they're spending much more time around sort of free and wealthy audiences. This is the pool of uh, enslaved labor that is more likely to get manumitted or freed. They're probably not being treated nearly as brutally as some of the communities that are sort of working in agricultural or extractive labor outside of Rome, in the great villas that are dotting Italy. Those are very, very brutal. And what we hear about that is primarily through kind of management texts, things like columellas on agriculture Mm. that are just describing horrific methods of, you know, torture and manipulation in order to try to get as much as you can out of these people before they die. Instead, Romans really preferred to talk about this urban population where older slaves might be manumitted, where you would be having people in sort of more family-like or sort of parasocial relationships. You hear about people marrying their slaves in this context, right? A lot of the stories that people will sometimes look to to try to say Roman slavery wasn't so awful are coming from the urban population. This is a very small slice. So the outcome of this is that the senators got their way and the law was applied, but not immediately. There was a massive outcry from the population of Rome, it seems, that 400 unconnected slaves unconnected to this murder whose only crime was being owned by Secundus and living in the same household. And I guess if you're applying the law, not acting well enough in Secundus's defense to save his life, are also going to be executed. That's men, women, children. It's just applied uniformly across the thing. So the people of Rome object to this to the extent where they're being a bit of an angry mob and throwing things. And don't know if I'd go far enough to call it a riot, but it's enough to delay the punishments. What's your point of view of all of that? You know, it's hard to say. I never feel personally like I have a great handle on what's going on with the Roman plebs Mm. uh, because so much of what we hear about them is through sort of very, very elite writers who are using the plebs as a kind of discursive tool. They're using them as a cudgel to beat people with often. And they appear in our sources in this very unpredictable way. I just don't ever feel like I get it. One thing that does occur to me with this story is that the plebs of the city of Rome is going to be much more connected to Rome's enslaved population, is going to have way more connections with that community than I think we necessarily imagine. So for example, I'm sure you've all figured this out already, but I'm American. And sort of every thought I have about slavery is filtered through the sort of distinctive experience of American racialized slavery in the antebellum period. And one of the features of that particular system is a very, very bright line in many communities between a poor free or a poor white population and the enslaved population. And there's sort of a lot of work on the political economy of that psychic wage of slavery, sort of how that very, very fine line create hostility between 
free and enslaved groups when it's based on a clearly visible distinction. I don't think you necessarily get that in the Roman context. We have reason to think that there sort of is a community of free Roman poor who sort of pride themselves on a very old basis in the city. I'm sort of going off of Juvenal's third, maybe? Which is the satire with the guy who sort of, this is why I'm leaving Rome? Oh, no, you, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> Juvenal has a satire where a guy says, this is why I'm leaving Rome. Yeah. And one of his points at the city has become overrun by Greek slaves. And that sort of, even though he is sort of of good Sabine stock, he is extremely poor. That certainly can exist in the imperial period. But remember, the Roman plebs is including the descendants of freed slaves. It's including the descendants of slaves. It's including the lovers, the partners of slaves. It's including people who are very, very tied in with this community. There's no reason to believe that these populations are nearly as separate as we want to think. And so I always assume the Roman plebs, there may be people who have connections to enslaved laborers who would be endangered by this kind of enforcement action. I don't think that's a ridiculous possibility. I take this as kind of a useful reminder of the basic porousness of sort of extremely subordinated labor within the context of the Roman city. It's also that this law has very narrow application. It clearly benefits the senators. It's got nothing to do with the people of Rome generally. The result of this is that the executions do go ahead, but Nero has to line the streets of Rome with soldiers in order to keep the peace, so to speak, as uh, these slaves are being let out to be punished. Uh, we've got the Caesar reprimanded the populace with an edict. And Tacitus kind of writes this as, as if it's a very serious reaction from Nero to write an edict to the people. And as I say, I lined the whole length of the road by which the condemned were being marched to punishment with detachments of soldiers. It's a very low-key way of saying that 400 people, men, women, and children, are marched outside the Esquiline Gate, and I believe the punishment for this sort of thing was crucifixion, which is a, a pretty nasty way to go. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I think Tacitus undersells that part of it a bit, but maybe he's more on the side of a senator. Yeah. I think Tacitus' own sympathies here are complicated, right? Because you that weird line, right? Because... There's a debate over what to do with Secundus's freedmen, right? This is a few years after the amendment of the bad law, and theoretically they're available for attack, but that seems to be off the table, which is itself kind of interesting here. There's a senator who tries to have them exiled, however, his name is Singonius Varro. Varro, I always want to do the V, but then it just sort of sounds like Mario's evil brother. And Tacitus says the measure was vetoed by Nero, lest gratuitous cruelty should aggravate a primitive custom which mercy had failed to temper. It's not immediately clear to me if this comes from a statement made by Nero himself. It's sort of hard to figure out whether Tacitus is speaking in his authorial voice here. But it is kind of remarkable to hear Tacitus describe this as a primitive custom or admit that that might exist in popular talk around the murder. You know, I think it's a tough sell to figure out exactly what's going on here. Tacitus is nothing if not playful. But I do think it is worth picturing the sort of violent backwardsness of this as a sort of sly backhanded comment on the violence that is undergirding everyone's relationship with Nero at the moment. 
We've got no more examples of the direct application of this law, which doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. I think more so it's an indication of, you know, if they do happen, they go ahead unchallenged. I think the whole reason that Tacitus was writing about this is that the people of Rome had a problem with it. Maybe if the death was particularly interesting, he might have written about it as well, actually, because he has form in that sort of thing. But what other writings from Roman sources do we have thinking about slaves in this way and maybe the threat that they pose to a wealthy master? First of all, I just feel the need to shout someone out here. A woman named Nicole Gianella at Cornell has been doing really fascinating work on the idea of enslaved cognition and how Romans think about thinking slaves. The idea of a slave as a person with their own wants, desires, and instrumental rationalities. Everything I sort of say here, you should think of as sort of a bad reflection of things that Nicole Gianella has thought of. And we should all sort of be watching closely for her book. With that out of the way, um, one of the things that I always find useful to think of here, Roman law's very, very carefully articulated approach to what happens when a bad act happens under your roof and no one is sure whether you signed off on it. This is actually a very, very common problem in our Roman legal sources. It is Ulpian who actually gives us the single clearest account on this. For those reading along at home, this is Digest 47611 from Ulpian's commentary on the edict. And Ulpian says that a man whose slaves commit a tort gets treated very differently depending on whether or not he knew they were doing it or not. And Ulpian defines knowledge in this very specific way. He says, a man is considered to know what's going on if he knows and could have prohibited it, right? We see similar reasoning in other jurists. Roman legal writing always uses these absurd hypotheticals. Mm. And you get things like, if I see my slave killing someone on the other side of a river and I yell at him to not kill that guy, but he can't hear me because it's a river, then it's <laughs> fine. It wasn't being done with my knowledge, right? Yeah. Um, Is that applying to a slave as well? Does a slave have the same expectations or restrictions? So this is where it gets complicated, right? Because we've looked at the bad law, which doesn't do anything like this. There is a very clearly articulated standard in sort of classical Roman law. And our sources that are talking about this are writing after Tacitus. But given that we have references to this sort of knowledge standard before, there's no reason to think that it wasn't being lost this way earlier. We're not applying any of this to slaves because the standard is just completely differently constructed for slaves. We are not saying, did you have the power to stop it and not do it? You know, this could apply to very young enslaved children in the household, mm. for example. This is more a, we don't care if you personally did anything right or wrong. We want to get your incentives right. We want you to be desperate to make sure that your owner isn't killed. We want you to care about his safety as much as you care about your own because we want to make them parallel. And that is a very, very different approach to guilt and liability than Romans tend to assign to free people it reflects sort of a much broader anxiety around how enslaved people engage with rules. They need extreme force, extreme punishment, because 
on one hand, they're never going to respond to anything that is more sensitive. And on the other hand, it is very important to the Roman elite that they think that slaves don't respond to anything that is more sensitive or sophisticated. Mm. You are not just treating these people so brutally and so kind of animalistically because that's all they respond to. It's because you want to believe that's all they respond to. And so you are very carefully trying to create a world in which your stereotypes are justified so you can sleep at night. Another interesting look at this attitude towards slaves that we've got is from Seneca. And I like to think that he's maybe writing this in response to these events. He was contemporary. He died a few years after these events. He died in 65 CE. And he hasn't referred to these events specifically, but he has a lot of thoughts about slaves and how the Roman elite interact with them. So I'm, I'm talking here in particular letter 47. It's very striking. He refers to slaves as enemies at home, right? We have as many enemies as we have slaves. They are not enemies when we acquire them. We make them enemies. Mm. There are very, very few acknowledgments of this basic truth in Roman thought. I always find Seneca very, very striking in this respect. It is always easy to go after Seneca for hypocrisy. You know, he is a man who famously criticizes ostentatious living as a member of the court of Nero, right? You can always find things to make Seneca look bad. But he is sometimes kind of bracingly clear in his writing about Roman society. And I think this is one of those moments. The idea of the slave as an enemy is by no means new. Seneca is pulling off of a very old tradition. And to be clear, we're using the term enemy. I believe Seneca is using the word hostis, which is a kind of military enemy. It's a term you would use for like a conquered enemy in war, mm. right? It's not like a rival. It's not like a sort of social enemy. Seneca is one of relatively few authors to really grasp how slavery inevitably creates these relationships right this is an idea that will obviously get picked up later i think of it as very very present for example in the work of john locke that slavery inherently creates relationships of military domination in which you can't legitimately ask anything of the person you have enslaved your relationship is too hostile. You have to be under constant supervision because there's sort of no morality. And you are responsible for that as the enslaver. That's a very unusual attitude. Seneca is a deeply weird guy. I always feel like a better kind of index of how most elite Romans are thinking. There's a line by Pliny that I really want to pull up. Is that okay, Matt? Is this Pliny the Younger where he writes about slaves and murder? 314 Lucius Machado, Machado? Yeah. Machado, yeah. His slaves are executed for his murder while he's still alive. Yeah. I mean, they beat him three quarters of the way to death and they were executed before he passed on. Yeah. Right. And there's this very interesting line. Pliny writes about it in a letter. And Pliny takes the story of another man being beaten to death quite viciously by his enslaved staff. And here's the lesson he takes away from it. You see how many dangers, how many outrages, how many insults we are exposed to. Nor is it possible for anyone to be safe just because he is lenient and kind. For it is not by rational calculation that masters are murdered, but by viciousness. This line is one of those things that is fascinating because it is wrong, and obviously so. It's missing something that I think to the modern audience is very important. 
When Pliny says it is not by rational calculation that an enslaver is murdered, what is it that makes that not something rational calculation could ever lead someone to do? You mean the law is meant to be keeping them in check and making them, as I think I said right at the start, think five times before they do something like this. Right. And they are constrained by law. Pliny is taking this obvious legal constraint and describing it in the language of sort of mental pathology or alterity, right? That slaves don't think like us. Slaves aren't rational and calculating, when of course the law presumes that they're rational and calculating, right? On one hand, they are being guardrailed by law, sort of very closely constrained with extreme supervision, and again, extreme violence and punishment, in order to cause them to behave and reason a certain way. Mm. And then that behavior, that process of reasoning, is brought in as proof of them being not like you or me. That's the part of this that I find absolutely crazy. Because, of course, in the real world, it is 100% the case that someone who was truly lenient and kind towards any enslaved people who happened to end up in their possession would rapidly find themselves in a circumstance in which there was no enslaved person who was going to be in a position to sneak into their house, right? Mm. Like, you're actually kind, you end up not owning a lot of people. Pliny can't really think that way, right? He can't really deal with that paradox. So instead, he takes the sort of brutality that is visited on enslaved people by law and portrays it as an inevitable result of certain kinds of cognitive traits or certain kinds of behaviors that are themselves actually being enforced by the law. The law is creating the reality to which it purports to respond, right? And this is something that I think you always have to keep track of. Just going to get back on my methodological high horse. As a legal historian, it is so easy for us to think about law as a thing that reflects reality because law always describes itself, but it also creates reality. Your house looks a certain way because of laws, mm. right? The way that we think, our habits of mind, the basic stuff we engage with in our everyday lives are shaped by legal codes. Mm. Our reality is very much a product of law. And that law often then takes that reality as something on the ground that it then needs to protect. You get these self-reinforcing cycles. And in the modern world, that's, you know, cool. It's really annoying if you're trying to use law as a source because we don't often have access to a social life that exists outside of the law. So in slave narratives, again, if you want to learn about slavery nowadays, we have access, constricted access, obviously, heavily curtailed access to people describing slavery as a thing that happened or was happening to them. In America, freed slaves talked about their experiences. We have stories like that. Mm. We have nothing like that from the ancient world. We only have records of how Romans talked about their slaves, how they regulated their slaves, how they thought about what their slaves were thinking. And their own voices, the voices of the people who are experiencing this regulation, are 
terrifyingly absent from those narratives. Little we see, and again, what we are seeing is filtered through the kind of funhouse anxieties of an enslaver society, suggests despair and rage and real pain that is hard to see through laws like this. You know, this law generates a very, very splashy debate, but you always have to remember hundreds of people were killed for no reason because it was the law. And when you're a legal historian, you always have to keep that dynamic in play. That was Assistant Professor Zachary Herz, legal historian in the Department of Classics at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. While you're there, you can find other podcasts I produce, When in Rome, Raising Standards, and Asia Rising. You can like Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Zach on Twitter. Zach is at Zachary Herz. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>